If you will, and turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we're going to be looking at a few verses here this morning, and then the Lord willing, we'll look at some more tonight concerning this idea of abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ. Our union with Christ, I think, is vividly displayed in the images of the vine and the branches. These are familiar verses to most of us, I'm sure. As we understand these images and the issues at hand here, the realities within this text, I think it's going to help kind of lay the groundwork for grasping one of Christ's fullest teachings of the Christian life. So much of cultural Christianity in our day has been perverted, a a perverted view of Christianity. People say they're Christians, they don't have any idea what a Christian really is. There's no clearer picture, I don't believe, of a relationship a believer has with the Lord and his reality of how life is distinctly, I said distinctly different than that which we see here in this text. A, a believer's union with Christ as the vine distinguishes him from the false believers who masquerade as Christians today. Now, first of all, before we really get into each verse of this chapter, let's think what it means to abide in Christ. <clears throat> we'll certainly be spending some time in looking at this concept through our study uh, of the book of John here, particularly John 15 in the next few weeks. But God's inspired Bible speaks of often of how the just live by faith. You find that back in Habakkuk. You find it in Romans. You find it in Galatians. You find it in Hebrews. The just refers to those justified through faith. Justified means God gifted these individuals His righteous, His righteousness in the gift of salvation. The gift of God Kind righteousness comes to the believer through the impartation of divine nature. You read that in Second Peter chapter 1. And then in the indwelling Holy Spirit of the Godhead. Now the redeemed are obligated to live the Christ-like life in the same way they received the indwelling Christ. We're to live by faith. And in doing so... We release the Christ life through our lives. This is what God's word calls the spiritual life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 6, 1 Peter chapter 2. Fellowship with God, 1 John chapter 1. And the filling of the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. And producing the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Now, We just finished chapter 14, and we spoke of real peace in our last study here in uh, this book. We said this implies real unity, as opposed to a fake peace or a fake unity, which is not peace or unity at all. It may look like it on the surface, 
But on the inside, inside the hearts of those involved, that is believers, there's really not peace. There's not unity. But there's a restlessness. There's even sinful thinking. There's dissatisfaction when there should be real peace. And salvation brings the believer into union with Christ. And practical sanctification brings the believer into unity with Christ. The unity of the Spirit, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4. And practical sanctification begins with trusting. Believing fully in our body, our heart, and our mind in the indwelling Christ. And this is supernaturally produced sanctification which is accomplished through a cooperative partnership with the empowering and enabling indwelling Christ. Now Jesus speaks of spiritual unity with him here in these first eight verses of John chapter 15. The importance of what John teaches or Jesus teaches in John 15 will probably never be realized until after we're dead and gone, glorified, finally standing at the judgment seat of Christ, but we'll see the outcome of those moments of selfish inconsideration when we live for carnal pleasures and worldly pursuits. But in John chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. Now the word abide is an imperative, it's a command. The believer is commanded to abide in Christ to ensure Christ abides in the believer. The word abide means to stay or to remain. To not abide in Christ is a serious act of sinful disobedience. The context demands that we understand the meaning is to do whatever is required to ensure that we live in continuous spirit-filled fellowship with Jesus Christ. The believer must be fully surrendered to Christ in such a way that Christ's will and the believer's will become one. The reality should be the condition of the heart before we make any request of God. You'll find this in this passage as well. And this defines living faith. Anything less would be simply a foolish attempt to manipulate God into doing what we want Him to do. And what depth of ignorance and unbelief to do such attempts and trying to do such foolishness as to try to manipulate, manipulate God. Now, down in verse 7, it connects the responsibility to the blessing of answered prayer. Verse 7 says, If we abide, if ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Notice here he defines the living in unbroken fellowship with him, necessitates that his words abide in us. In other words, it's not some mystical, abstract experience without definite limits. It's not the acceptance of anything goes in religious expression. It's the necessity that Jesus' words abide in us defines pure Christianity, purely the Word of God. What is the first question you ask yourself when you do not receive an answer to your prayer? 
Well, maybe the first question should be, am I fully surrendered to Christ? Do I have an area of known disobedience to God's word in my life? Have I sought the counsel of someone I respect spiritually? Will I give that person permission to speak to me frankly about these questions? What really defines the prayer of faith? Is faith somehow disconnected with our walk with the Lord? Well, the pattern of Scripture is that faith has more to do with the way we live than than about anything else. We go back to verse 1, we see the first of all, about what God's Word is teaching us. And if we even go back a little further than verse 1, we go to the last verse of chapter 14. It tells us that Jesus and the disciples were about to leave the upper room. They were headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would pray His great high priestly prayer, later be arrested by the mob, led by Judas. And apparently Jesus speaks the words that make up chapters 15 and 16 in as they're going to the garden. And so in this chapter, Jesus here in verse 1 is pictured as the true vine. I can imagine Jesus and these men going through the darkened streets of the city and then passing beyond the walls. They uh, go into the surrounding countryside and during this time of the year probably about the same time we have now, the grape vines will begin to blossom. The promise of a fresh harvest. And Jesus walks with his disciples and perhaps he reaches out and he took a vine in his hands and used it to teach them an object lesson. And his desire was to teach them the most vital relationship they have in their lives is the one that they had with him, Jesus Christ and his Father. And we might ask ourselves, Why did Jesus give this teaching now? Well, the answer is simple. They needed it. These men have just been informed that God or Jesus is going away. But that his work is going to continue. It's going to continue through them and in their lives. And if they're going to carry on the work of God... They're going to need to know how to produce the kind of fruit they need to produce in their lives. And so this morning, we're more than 2,000 years removed from that night, but the work of the Lord still marches on, and God is still working through the followers of Jesus Christ to accomplish His work and His will today. Many of us may sit here and wonder how we're supposed to do the work of the Lord. How can we produce that kind of fruit in our lives? I think the answer is found here in these verses. And you may say, as we begin here, you may have looked at the outline and said, wow, there's a lot of blanks to fill in here, okay? Is preacher going to last that long? Well, we'll give it a whirl. So I hope you brought a sharpened pencil or a fresh ink pen, whatever you like to use, and can listen fast, all right? Notice, first of all, the personality of the true vine. 
See this in verses 1 through 3. The personality of the true vine. And speaking of the personality of the true vine, I want to notice, you to notice the genuineness of the true vine. The genuineness of the true vine. Jesus and Jesus alone possesses life within himself. It's what we found out in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All other vines are counterfeit. There's only one way. It's through Jesus Christ. He alone is the true source of everlasting abundant life. It's interesting to note that the symbol of the vine is, was used for the nation of Israel. I'm not going to take time to go back to Psalm 80, verse 8 through 10. I'll just note it here. The same truth is found in Isaiah 5. But this vine had not lived up to its intended purpose. See that in Jeremiah 2.21, Hosea 10 verse 1. And so God had sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this world as the true vine. What Israel had failed to do, he would accomplish. Whatever prompted his teaching that night, it's clear that his desire was to teach them about the most vital relationship they would have in their lives, the one with the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father. So you see, first of all, the genuineness of the true vine. Secondly, you see the gardener of the true vine. In verse 1, it talks about the husbandman. That's a word, a term referring to the vine dresser or the gardener, the one who cared for the vineyard. Jesus says that the Heavenly Father is the gardener, the husbandman of the vine dresser. Now, the Greek word there is Georgus or Jorgus. It's the root name for the name George. Anybody named George here this morning? I don't think we have any Georges here, but it means farmer. We have any farmers here? Well, if you're a farmer, your name should be George. Is that what it means? No. It's just a word that speaks of one who is a farmer. Someone who tills the soil. And there's going to be a lot of tilling going on here if we get some dry, a dry spell. Even if it's dry enough, they could probably go into the field tomorrow. But in the context, it refers to the one who is the vine dresser, the farmer, the gardener, the one who's the expert at caring for the, so- the vines. Now, in verse 2, there's a key phrase. And that key phrase is two words, in me. And this lets us know that we're dealing with the genuine believers. He isn't talking about those who profess Christ and yet have never possessed him. He's not talking about wheat and tares. He's only talking about wheat. The gardener is involved in everything that has to do with the vine. And this verse zeroes in on two very specific duties the gardener has in regard to the vine. First of all, he has the Duty of protection. That is, the gardener provides tender watch care and protection for the vineyard. Aren't you glad that the Lord sees everything that goes on? You say, well, I'm not so sure I'm glad that he sees everything. Sometimes I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I'm still glad he's the one who sees everything. 
I praise the Lord for the sure knowledge that nothing gets by our Heavenly Father. And so one of the duties is His protection. Another one is purifying. The gardener uses two primary methods of purifying his vineyard. First of all, he challenges now that's a nice way of saying what he does there. He challenges the branch. It says there, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Now the words taketh away means to lift up or to raise higher. It's really not a sense of taking it someplace else. I don't know if you know anything about Growing grapes and vines and so forth. Sometimes the vines get down in the dirt and they really can't do much there. But take it away is, 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 is the phrase that means to lift up, raise higher. That's what the gardener will do to an unfruitful branch. He'll lift it from the dirt into which it has fallen to give it a better chance to be productive. On a personal level, this means that when we get to the place in our Christian lives where we are unfruitful or barren, the Lord will reach into our lives, He'll disturb our slumber, and He'll lift us up in an effort to challenge us, to shock us maybe, into growing. Times when the Lord can only accomplish this maybe through chastisement, which if responded to with repentance will help us to be fruitful to His glory. If, however, we choose to go on in our sins, there is a sin unto death, according to John, 1 John 5.16. I wonder, has the Lord been challenging areas of your life? If so, don't run from the challenge. Instead of running from God, turn to God, run to Him. <clears throat> After all, his chastisement is always proof of his love and your relationship with him. So he challenges the branch. Secondly, he cleanses the branch. That is, the gardener removes things from the branch that sap its vitality or strength. And it's kind of like what we call sucker branches or useless buds. Some of you gardeners know what I'm talking about. Maybe misdirected shoots or spots, or discolors, discolored leaves. Sometimes these plants that we have at the front of our church here need to be, you know, some of that needs to be done. Anything that consumes life but produces no fruit must go. So it is in the life of the believer. When we allow things into our lives that hinder our walk with God, We're in danger of a pruning. Now the word pruning there by its very name sounds painful. It's not, it isn't always easy to cut the junk out of your life, is it? But we need to do it. And if we don't do it, the Lord will. Some advice from Hebrews 12.1 says, Wherefore, seeing we, are all, we also are compassed about with so great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin in which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. 
Now, how is this pruning accomplished? It's accomplished by the word of God. So it says in verse 3, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And so like a mirror, the word of God reveals uh, problems in our lives. James 1, 23 and 24, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and taketh his it goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of, of man he was. It's not only like a mirror, but it's like a knife. The word of God cuts, sometimes cuts to the heart. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the question this morning is, as the Lord is speaking through his word, we mentioned this in our Sunday school class, how that we need to realize that God is speaking every time you open the word. It's not, we we shouldn't be praying, Lord, speak to me today through your word. He's going to speak to you. The question is, are you listening? Are we listening? Do we have a heart to obey? And as the Lord is speaking through his word, are you listening? If so, have you been heeding the call from the Lord? If not, then I would challenge you to allow the Lord to prune your life with his word. If that's not accomplished, then he'll take you further and he'll take even farther, more uh, drastic measures. So that's the personality of the true vine. Secondly, knows the purpose of the true vine. The purpose. We see this in verses 2 through 8. First, there's a distinct purpose. Verse 2, we see the distinct purpose of the, uh, uh, of the vine is to produce fruit. The vine exists for the purpose that purpose alone. Without the fruit, the vine and all the efforts are wasted. And the true vine has that singular purpose, and that is to bear fruit to the glory of the Lord. There's not only a distinct purpose, there's a distinguished purpose. You jump down to verse 8, it says, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. The reason the vine desires produce fruit is so that the vine dresser might receive the honor. And when fruit is yielded in the vineyard, the vine, the branches, the soil, even the fruit does not get the credit. All the glory goes to the Father who is the husbandman, the gardener, the vine dresser. So it is with the Lord Jesus. Everything he did and and has done was to glorify his Father. And that ought to be our burning desire this morning. To live our lives in such a way every waking minute is to bring glory to the Father which is in heaven. Now there's something wrong in any life when there's no desire to bring glory and honor to God. The God who loves us. The God who sustains us, who cares for us. There's not only a distinct and distinguished purpose, but there's a delegated purpose. I want you to notice this truth here. The vine in itself does not bear fruit. The fruit comes from the branches. The branches have the obligation of bearing the fruit. The vine supplies its life to the branches and takes that life and uses it to bear fruit. And here's a word to the branches about our fruit bearing. 
First of all, there's the qualifications for fruit bearing. There are three qualifications. One, the branch must be attached. If you're not in the vine, there's no way for you to share in the vine's life. There's a vital union between the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ, the true vine. And we need to recognize our standing this morning. If we're in the vine, then we are in Him at Calvary. And when He rose from the dead, in that case, then our old man has been crucified and we have been raised to walk in newness of life in Jesus. And if we are in Him, then we are in Him today. That is, we've already basically ascended to heaven. We're seated at the, uh, there in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 2.6. But we're attached. Second thing is, the branch must abide. That's what we see in verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me he can do nothing. We must maintain a close fellowship with the vine as he, uh, if he is to live through us to produce fruit. And this is only accomplished by abiding in him. Now, how does one abide? Well, prayer, studying the word, denying self, drawing nigh to God. The closer we abide in the vine, the more his life can flow through us and produce the fruit he desires. Is it any wonder so many Christian lives are fruitless and barren? How would you describe your life this morning? Are you bearing fruit for the Lord? Well, there's a third qualification, that is you must be available. Verse 5, And may, may I remind you that fruit bearing is a passive activity on the part of the branch. If the branch will simply abide in the vine, then the vine will most certainly produce its fruit. I don't know about you, but I think that's a great truth. The problem is, so many times we're not abiding. And so we're not able to produce the fruit, or or the fruit is not able to be produced. It's the vine's responsibility to produce the fruit. That means... That frees me to do the work and the labor that receives his approval. It's my yielding as he lives his life through me. You know, when we speak of fruit, what do we mean? What will be produced in our lives when we yield? How will we know if fruit is being produced through us? Three basic fruit the Lord bears in the lives of his children. Number one, there's sanctification. We become like, more like him. We could read many passages of scriptures about this. Romans 6, Philippians 1, Colossians 1. Sanctification, we become more like him. Then there's spirituality, we behave more like him. Galatians chapter 5. And then we're burdened like him. Being burdened like him means that there are souls we have a burden for souls. So those are the qualifications of bearing fruit. That's what fruit is. Notice, secondly, the quality of our fruit. 
This is not the branch's responsibility again. Uh, we're abiding in the vine. He's pro- reproducing his life in us. We can be assured that the fruit that is produced is honoring to the Lord. Again, a very liberating truth, I believe. The quality. And then there's the quality or quantity. Again, that's not my responsibility. Some will produce much. Some will pr- produce little. Depends upon the will of the vine. Our duty, to repeat myself, is to abide. And yet it's clear that from these verses that God anticipates a steady progression into the level of our fruitfulness. Again, in verses 2 and 8, first there's no fruit, then there's more fruit, and then there's much fruit. The closer we are abiding in the vine, the more fruit we will yield, or He will yield through our lives. And then there's the quagmire. There's a word for you. Why did I use the word quagmire? Starts with Q, okay? The quagmire of fruitlessness. Verse 6. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and and they are burned. Not every branch abides in the vine as it should. It's still attached but it ceases to draw life from the vine's fullness. As a result, there's fruitlessness. And what happens? Well, there's three results. First is the loss of fellowship. Now, we don't don't lose our relationship, but when we're not fruitful, but we're cast out, not abiding. The withered branch still possesses the same nature as the vine, but it's no longer attached in the sense of life-drawing fellowship. There's a loss of vitality. We're withered. We possess no life. We're dead and dried up. Describes many Christians. I hope it doesn't describe your, your life. It didn't used to be this way for many of you. But perhaps for some, there is a deadness where there used to be life. There's a weakness where there used to be power. There's an emptiness where there used to be fullness. The need is to come back and be renewed in a long, uh, with that long fellowship. Once again, to start drawing life giving juice from the vine, producing fruit for him. And then thirdly, there's a loss of reward. When this life is over, there will be many who name the name of Christ who were unfruitful in their experience. They will experience loss of every reward. And we read that in 1 Corinthians 3. Many think they'll be content just to go to heaven. Boy, if the Lord just come, I'd be glad to go to heaven. What about the judgment seat of Christ? Will you hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Or are you going to be some of the fruitless, of the fruitless branch? The loss of reward. So you have the personality of the true vine, you have the purpose of the true vine, and then you have the promise of the true vine. Find this in verses 7 through 11. Those who abide in the true vine can rest assured 
of certain precious and sure promises. Number one, an unhindered prayer life. You go back to John chapter 14 and verse 13 and 14, it says, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye ask anything in my name, I will do it. When we're abiding as we should be, and when we're drawing our life from Him, then His will will be our will. And that's, that is every time we pray, and everything we pray for will perfectly fit into His will. And His will is that He will grant our requests. An unhindered prayer life. Secondly, an unending love. Those down in verse 9, it says, And the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Jesus loves all men always. But those who are abiding in him have entered into a special, ever-deepening relationship with him. And this is the promise of the vine to the branches. And then there's an uncommon joy. Verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy may remain in you that your joy might be full. Now joy is not happiness. Happiness is something that depends on happenings. But joy is a deep settled inner pleasure. It's deep settled assurance, confidence in our relationship with the Father and with Christ that fills the heart with joy unspeakable and full of glory. It ignites the heart to serve God. Notice these truths about joy. Joy is divine in nature. It originates with God. It's only given by God. It's absolutely unaffected by earthly or material things. Secondly, joy is not dependent upon happiness. God's joy abides at all times, even the most difficult times. And then joy is the product of faith. When one is assured of one's standing in Christ, joy is the result Joy in the Lord produces faithfulness in the Lord. Nehemiah tells us the joy of the Lord is our strength and gives us courage for the battles. Yes, Jesus is the true vine. His desire is to live through your life so that you'll bear much fruit. There are some questions we close with this morning. Number one, are you in the vine? Have you been saved? Have you been grafted into Jesus? If not, we'd invite you to come to Christ today. Secondly, are you abiding in the vine? Are you drawing your strength from him so that he is able to produce fruit through your life? I think we sometimes need to stop and think, is there fruit coming from my life as a believer? If not, maybe I'm not abiding in Christ as I should be. Are you bearing his fruit today? Where do you stand with the Lord? If God has revealed areas in your life that need to be pruned back or otherwise dealt with, My challenge to you today is to come to Jesus. Let him take care of your need. If you've never been saved, come. Let us show you how you can be placed into the vine, become a child of God. If there's a need, Jesus is the supply. Let's pray. Father in heaven.